I've often wondered what it would be like to be one of Jesus' first disciples, to walk with the dust of his feet clinging onto my clothes, to hear his sermons firsthand, to watch some of his miracles right there in front of me. Well, I don't have a time machine, but I am excited about a new series that we're starting right now. Um, For the next two months, we're going to be taking a look at A Year in the Life of Jesus. We're going to look at John's Gospel, chapters 2 through 4, which chronicle roughly a a chronological year of Jesus' ministry. I think that what excites me most about this is that we're just going to be looking at Jesus, who he was, what he taught, without the trappings of... Well, there's always opinions and there's always traditions, but just trying to let the Scripture speak for itself. So without further ado, I'm going to jump right in. And um, if you want to follow along, it's John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I think that's 727 in your pew Bible. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim and said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it had come from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. This is the beginning of his signs. The signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested His glory, and His disciples believed in Him. That's right. Jesus, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You that it's gospel, it's good news. And I pray that You would guide us this evening as we enter into this text. Guide us to sing the good news, and not only to understand it with our heads, but to embrace it with our life. Meet with us tonight, Lord. We're desperate for your touch. Amen. Amen. So there was a wedding in Cana. Cana, a small town, kind of a hick town. It's about eight miles away by foot to Nazareth. All right? Well, I guess it's eight miles even if you're not on foot, but it's a walking distance to Nazareth. It's kind of interesting that the scripture that Megan read is, is just the verses right before this. It's the preceding context. And in there, you remember Jesus finds this guy Philip, and then Philip runs and tells his friend Nathaniel, I found this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph, and I think he's the guy who's going to fulfill all the prophets and fulfill the law of Moses. And, and Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Like, Nazareth was a small town too. The funny thing is, is that in about 18 verses or chapters, we're going to learn that Nathaniel is from Cana. 
So it's kind of like a guy from Sumas saying, can anything good come out of Everson? Or that from Lake Stevens saying, you know, that uh, can anything good come out of Cedar or Woolley? Like they're having this small town rivalry with each other. It's just kind of an amusing side. They're in Cana. Small town. And then here's the thing about weddings. Very expensive. I've kind of been freaked out about weddings ever since, since an experience last summer when we were having dinner with uh, Ryan and Christine Wasserman. And we're around the table, and Benjamin at the time was three, and Sophia was two and a half. And Benjamin says, Sophia, I think we should get some babies. I was like, I couldn't even speak. My jaw dropped. And then Christine stepped in, and like a good mom, I thought she was going to correct him. She said, Benjamin, you should ask her daddy if you can marry her first. And then I just couldn't even speak. I think they, they, just, they just laughed at me. But it got me thinking... Well, I'm thinking about a lot, but first of all, should I start saving for my daughter's weddings? Because now we have two. Stella was born four months ago. This is just this is going to be an expensive endeavor in about hopefully 18, 20 years, not next year. This Benjamin kid on her. Um, anyway, so weddings are expensive now, or they can be. But in Jesus' day, they were incredibly expensive. Sometimes weddings would last five to seven days. And the custom was that you would invite as many people as possible from your village. Now, if you were in a small town like Cana, you would even invite people in outlying villages like Nazareth. Which is possibly why Jesus and his mother and his disciples were invited to this wedding as well. Now, here's the deal. You invite all these people to your wedding for a week. And the bride and the groom's families were responsible to pay for it all. The food, the wine, the entertainment. Lodging was okay because in those days they just crashed in different houses and stuff. They were more hospitable than we are in a lot of ways. But this was an expensive endeavor. Not only did you have to provide food and drink for everyone for five to seven days, you had to provide more than they could possibly consume. This was the common custom of hospitality in those days. But it's not as bad as you think. There were two things that guests were expected to do. First of all, a guest would come and bring some kind of food or wine or, or some gift to help offset the cost. But it would never offset the whole cost. The other thing was that this was a culture of reciprocity. So I invite you to my wedding, I put out the big bucks for a week of partying, then I better get invited to your sibling's wedding and your, and your kin's wedding. See, it's this reciprocity. So you might be out a little bit in the beginning, but you're going to get it back through other social circumstances. But here's the deal. If you threw a lame party, let's just be honest, if you ran out of food, you ran out of wine, the entertainment was bad or non-existent, you would not get invited anywhere. In fact, in an honor and shame society, your name would be, would be dirt for years. It's not, it's not just some little thing that washes over. It's like, oh, those Eltridges, they just threw a lame party and... They are, you actually are lower on the social totem pole. So it's a big deal to run out of food or to drink. And what happens in the scripture, they run out. They run out. Now, here's...
Here's the deal with these kind of weddings. You're in a small village. You've got tons of people. And bless you. It's a little different uh, culture than it is today, right? They would have women's quarters and men's quarters. So the women would kind of crush in one area. The men would do their manly thing and talk. I don't know if they talk about camel races or whatever, but they talk of sports or something. And uh, they were separate. The women oftentimes were housed near the storehouse of the food and the wine. They had servants to serve all these things, but let's be honest, the women ran the show. No, those don't go on that plate. They go on this platter. It looks better. You know, you know how it is, right? So the women would go to the storehouse, and Mary would have understood before the men that the wine was running out, that it was indeed gone. Now she's going to try and save face for this bride and groom, this young couple who don't want to start their new married life out on a wrong foot with a shamed name. So she doesn't, the first thing she does is doesn't go tell the leaders or, or, or the head of the wedding. She goes to Jesus, probably for two reasons. One, she thinks he can do something about it. Two is, Jesus brought this whole bunch of disciples. We don't know how many at this point, but let's just say a few. And Jesus was supposed to bring a gift. Everything we know about Jesus from Scripture is he's kind of a poor guy and like... Women paid for everything. <laughs> he's, he's kind of got a made there. Um, so he, she's saying like, Hey son, do you want to buck up and maybe get a gift? Maybe they need some wine? Now the problem is in Cana, in these small towns, you don't just have a Hagen or a liquor store, something like that where you can buy more wine. They're in Jerusalem, maybe. Antioch for sure, but not Cana. Cana, this wine that they had was probably pressed in the town or they had planned in advance and had it ordered and delivered. So they're out of luck. Jesus has got to pull out some, some crazy skills here to, to get anything done. And Jesus says something interesting. Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Now you've got to hear me on this. Jesus is not saying, woman... It is not a derogatory word. It's, in fact, a very endearing term. But it's a very formal term. Normally, sons did not talk to their mothers like that. My mom, Kay, right here, I call her mom. She comes in, I give her a hug. It's very informal. If I saw all of a sudden calling her ma'am, she would think I'd done something wrong or something's weird here. Now what Jesus is doing is the equivalent of that. He's all of a sudden using very formal language. It's polite, but it's distancing himself a bit from, from Mary, his mother. Ma'am, what does this have to do with us? And there's a change in their relationship at this point. For however old Jesus is here, let's say 30 years, it's been mother-son, son-mother. And now something is shifting to Lord and disciple. She doesn't really know what she's asking Jesus to do. In fact, she doesn't really know what he's going to do. But Jesus knows that once he starts his ministry, once he shows a sign, he's on the way to his hour. This is the first time in the Gospel of John that we've seen this word, my hour. My hour. We're going to see it a lot more as we keep going through John. Jesus' hour is the hour of His glory. And the hour of His glory is nothing like the glory that we see on TV 
the glory when LeBron James brings down a big jam in the playoffs and everyone goes crazy. It's not the glory we see um, maybe a rich and powerful person proclaim to have. Jesus' glory is the cross. It's giving Himself up for you and for me. His mother doesn't know that when He starts down this road, every day is the day closer to the cross. Mary has to make a choice. What would you do if you say, Jesus, the wine is out, and He says, Ma'am, what does that have to do with us? Period. She has to make a choice. Does Mary take matters into her own hands? Just get it done? Does she give up and just say, Oh, too bad, that couple's just going to have to suffer? Does she get angry at Him? Does she get depressed about it? Mary does something very admirable. She trusts Jesus. Mary, the mother of Jesus, has a history of trusting and things she can't see. In Luke's Gospel, we learn that the angel Gabriel came to her when she was a young woman, engaged to be married. And I'm paraphrasing, but he basically said, you're going to have God's baby. The Holy Spirit's going to put it in there. And you will be with child. Just before that, her cousin Elizabeth heard the same news through her husband Zechariah, a priest in Israel. You know what he does? How can that happen? He doubts. Mary, this young woman, says, I am the Lord's bondservant. May it be according to your word. She, of all people, knows that God can do the impossible. And here, she has the same faith in her son. And she says to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Whatever he says to you, do it. This is a woman who has faith in her son who has raised him the right way. And I just want to put a little plug in there since it is Mother's Day. Isn't that the hope of, of any parent but mothers too, to, to nurture a child to a place where they are equipped and sent out to fulfill their calling in life to find that one thing that they can be passionate about and do with fervency. In fact, there's a history of women all throughout Scripture, but even in the early church and beyond, of women raising godly people. In fact, mothers making a difference in the way of the world because of how they raise their kids. For example, in the early church, before Constantine made Christianity legal in Rome, it was... It was hard to break into that system. The historian and sociologist Rodney Stark argues that it was through aristocratic women that the gospel spread. And here's how. Their husbands, the high the senators, the aristocrats, they weren't buying the gospel. Not because of its truth or false, falseness, but because it wasn't politically the smart thing to do. But these women in Rome, these, these aristocratic women, found that Christianity gave them more power than any pagan religion, gave them more opportunity to be a woman, to be of service to something, than any other option. And so many of these aristocratic women became followers of Jesus Christ. And if they couldn't convert their sons, there's one class they could have influence with. 
they couldn't convert their husbands, they could convert their sons and their daughters. And they raised a generation of people in power who were also lovers of Jesus. And I just put that out there to those of you who are mothers or those of you who uh, are women of influence with other people. You act as his mothers, perhaps. You have a very high calling. And a calling that is honored over history and has changed the world. Go moms. So Mary trusts Jesus, tells these servants, whatever he says, do it. Whatever he says, do it. She has faith in these insurmountable circumstances. And I know that most of us are facing at least one insurmountable circumstance, if not more, right now. I know that some of you are dealing with health issues. And you don't know, the, the end is unclear about what's going on. Whatever he says, do it. Some of you are facing financial difficulties or difficulties in parenting, whether it's teenagers or three-year-olds. Some of you are facing career decisions. All of us share the human condition of an uncertain future on this earth. What advice would Mary give us? Whatever he says, do it. Let's get back to the story. Whatever he says, do it. Now, they introduce these six stone water pots. They're there for the Jewish purification, right? They each contain 20 or 30 gallons. These water pots were common in homes. You would either have a bath or these pots, and they were for ritual purification. You would wash your hands. And the whole idea behind it was to wash away your sinfulness before eating, before uh, any religious rite, before you go to synagogue or temple. You would wash in this, in this purified water. The deal with these pots is that you cannot put anything else in there or it would defile them. And you couldn't have that ritual purified water. All right? So, so far so good. We understand that. And Jesus says to these servants, fill the water pots. Whatever he says, do it. Okay, that's an easy one. I can fill water pots with water. That's what they're for. So far, piece of cake. Then he says, draw out some of this water and bring it to the head waiter. Well, now we're getting into tricky territory. This head waiter is not one of the servants. It's not like the top servant who they're friends with already. The head waiter was probably a free person. In fact, it was probably like the best man of the wedding. It could be an older, honorable person, or it could be exactly like the best man, a contemporary of the groom. But this person's job would have been to make sure that the flow of the evening, the flow of the week was going well. He'd be coordinating entertainment. He'd be coordinating coordinating the wine and the food, which incidentally, he would look bad too if they ran out of wine. They're supposed to be meeting it out and certain uh, rationing it out. He'd also be in charge of the chicken dance and the Macarena and other wedding niceties. Whatever he says, do it. Now these servants don't want to mess around. I know that this, this head waiter who is the MC of the whole week, he's a busy guy. I got a lot of pressure on him. And Jesus is telling them to pull out some purified water. You're not supposed to drink it, by the way, and give it to him. Whatever he says, do it. It sounds ridiculous. Whatever he says, do it. So they have faith and they just do this. They listen to Jesus. 
When the head waiter tasted that water, which had become wine, he didn't know where it came from. The servants knew. He called over the, the bridegroom and said, What is going on? Normally at these things, they serve the good wine first. But you know, you've been drinking a week. Anything's going to taste good by the third day, the fourth day. You know what I'm saying? So, and, and don't get me wrong. Like these weren't drunken debauchery. If this was a strict Jewish wedding, the, the drunkenness was frowned upon, like crazy drunkenness. But they had their buzz on. Okay, there, there was this line. You know, they, they, a lot of people make arguments that, well, this wasn't alcoholic wine. It, it is alcoholic. Like wine is one of the oldest drinks in history. It goes way back before, before Jesus' day. Um, it, it, it's, but it's cut a little bit. There's water in it. So anyway, I'm not making a case for or against drinking. I'm just saying. They probably had their buzz on, and that's why uh, normally you serve the bad stuff last. But, but to serve the good wine, to serve the good wine at the end, is an extreme show of generosity, of grace. And that's exactly what happens. But what we get to see, what the bridegroom doesn't know, is that Jesus has done this thing. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but this is one of the most spectacular miracles in all of Scripture. I think besides two things, besides the incarnation when God became flesh, to me that's, that's A number one, and that's the craziest thing I've ever heard of. Number two is the resurrection. Like, who does that? You're dead. You can't, you can't just come back. The resurrection is in a new body. We talked about this on Easter. Those are the top two. The next one, it's not the, the raising of Lazarus, Lazarus from the dead. It's not having blind people see or deaf people talk or even shriveled limbs coming back. You know why it's not those things? Because Jesus is dealing with stuff that already exists. Lazarus was dead. He's got a body. He just breathed new life into it. If I've got a shriveled hand, I've still got hand molecules in there. Jesus just takes those and makes them normal. But if you're just talking about H2O, there's no grapes in there. There's no bacteria. No, the stuff for wine isn't in there yet. Jesus completely changes the molecular structure of water and turns it into wine. And you are not going to see a miracle like that in John's Gospel, until the resurrection. It's a powerful, powerful sign he does here. Jesus is the life of the party. I bet that's the best invite that they, you know, they ever made of all those people. They invited Jesus. He's the life of the party. I was kicking around a sermon title for this. And I was thinking, Obey Your Mother would be a good one for Mother's Day. And Mary, you know, she's got this uh, definite role in this. And I thought it would be really cool to honor the mothers by, by saying, Obey Your Mother. It doesn't get to the heart of the text for me. Mary should be honored in this. Most of the time we should listen to our mamas. We should definitely have faith like Mary does. But what is the object of her faith? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's bigger than just obeying someone or just having faith. It's faith in Jesus, the one who can transform lives, the one who can take water and make it something completely new. He's the life of the party. He transforms in abundance. He takes you out of wine. He doesn't just give a little wine, not a case of wine, not a jar of wine. Six jars of wine, over a hundred gallons of wine, to the brim. That detail is there on purpose, I think. They fill it to the brim because it's a sign of Jesus' overflowing grace coming onto that party. When we're out of options... 
feel like we're at the end, Jesus can transform our lives. Whatever He says, do it. And I think that most of all, what He wants to do, besides get us out of jams, much more than that actually, He wants to transform us. He wants to take us from places of guilt and shame and ruts of living that are not life-giving. And He wants us to make us new, to recreate us into His image. That's the transforming work the life of the party has to offer us. If Jesus is the life of the party, why don't we invite Him in more often to the party of our lives? One of the things I love about this scripture is that it's so normal. It's so mundane. Right now as I'm speaking, somebody somewhere in the world is probably saying, I do, and kissing the bride. Weddings happen all the time. Don't get me wrong, I love weddings. I think they're incredibly special moments for that couple. But if you're the God of the universe and you're going to display your first sign... I mean, if it were me, and this is just the way I think, and that's why I'm not God, I'd be doing it in, in, in Jerusalem, or in Rome, or someplace where more people would see, and the whole world would know. But Jesus enters the mundane. A wedding in a small town like Cana. Not in Jerusalem, not in Antioch, not in Alexandria, not in Rome, not in Seattle, not in Bellingham, but a small family wedding out in the county. Maybe at North Fork Brewery Wedding Chapel. That would be a good place. I would go. And the reason he seems to do this, his, his baseline motivation, isn't to make a big splash, a big ta-da. It's to save face for a young couple who remain nameless in the story. We don't even know who they are. And that's just like our God. He cares about the mundane things of our lives that we might even think He doesn't care about. You might be stressing out about something and you don't even want to pray about it because, oh, God wouldn't care about this. God's the kind of God that cares about a nameless couple in a hodunk town like Cana. And He doesn't just meet their need. He lavishes them in abundant grace. So I challenge you, I challenge me, invite the life of the party into your mundaneness. Invite Jesus to go to work with you. How might you see Him there? How might you see others differently if you knew Jesus was right there with you? In the mundane things of driving and recreating of being at home. These are the places that Jesus dwells every bit as much as here. We're in broken down old cathedrals. Jesus dwells where you are. And He cares about the mundane. As much as I think this passage is about faith and is about transformation, I'm going to take it one step higher. I want to take it one step higher. I think that this passage is also about something much bigger. And the reason I say that is because there's one word in here, and it's the word signs. The word signs. In the Greek, simeon. And John in particular, the Gospel writer, uses this word simeon to, to mean so much. 
Jesus assigns that there's seven of them in John's Gospel. Don't worry, we'll get to them all eventually. Can't wait. Um, these signs point to something bigger than just an event. So hear me on this. When we have a sign like the wedding at Cana, the transformation of water to wine, Jesus really cares about that couple. He really changed the water to wine. But He really did that to bless those people and to show us something bigger. Okay? And to show us something bigger. And I argue that what He's showing us in the wedding at Cana is something about the kingdom of God. Something about the kingdom of God coming to earth. And here's why I say that. The wedding banquet is a common metaphor of the kingdom of God. There's pictures in the Old Testament, and Jesus makes them too, and Revelation talks about this, but one of the metaphors of eternal life and blessing is being at a table with the Father and enjoying table fellowship with other people and God and food flowing and drink flowing and there being peace and abundance and goodness and health. This is a metaphor of the kingdom could be coincidence that Jesus does his first sign at a wedding, but John doesn't think so. And I tend to side with apostles, not opinions. And if he thinks this is a sign, what could it be a sign of? I think it's a sign of the kingdom. I think that that's what all his signs are. Wine is also a metaphor of blessing and goodness. And again, this is kingdom language. The wine of grace flowed at Cana. Here's another little tidbit. In the beginning of chapter 2, it says, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. When you go home, not now, I'm trying to preach here. When you go home, add up the days from the beginning and tell me why that should be the third day. I think you'll find that an interesting thing. It should not be the third day. When did Jesus rest from the dead? On the third day. John is setting us up here with some interesting sign language. Another sign of the kingdom is that the kingdom is often revealed to those who are powerless, who are weak, who are on low social standing. What we know about the wedding at Cana is that the only people that really understood what happened were the servants. Probably Mary, Jesus' mom, and Jesus' disciples. None of the higher-ups, not the, not the bridegroom, uh, not the, uh, the head waiter. They didn't know that the water turned to wine. They just knew that there's a lot of wine that showed up. Okay? Bridegroom. Jesus is often described as the bridegroom. The church is often described as the, the bride. Interesting that in this passage, who gets the glory for the wine? It's the bridegroom. The head waiter comes up and says, normally people give the good wine first and save the bad till the last, but it's you've done the opposite. You've had this overabundance of wonderful wine. I guess Jesus is a good venter. And, and you're, you're, you're blessing us now. There's no word about Jesus ever getting credit for that miracle, for that sign. But this is funny. So that bridegroom gets credit for it. He gets honor amongst his peers. But for 2,000 years, millions of people, maybe billions, have read this passage. And we're all getting glory to crust for this, to the rightful bridegroom. That's kingdom. It's kingdom. Here's a quote from a commentator. 
The gospel is about the manifestation of the sovereign rule of God in life. It looks to the ultimate completion of God's total work, the creation of new heavens and new earth. The effective signs of the presence of this sovereign power in the ministry of Jesus form, therefore, a large part of the story which the evangelist has to tell. This sign is a taste, a tidbit, of what's coming. The gospel is about new life, not just personally, but for all who believe and for the entire created order. This is a, a, a sign that indeed heaven is kissing earth in Jesus Christ. That with the ministry of Jesus and this first sign, the kingdom of God is breaking in. We see in this story then that like Mary, we can trust and do whatever He tells us to do. Because reality is not as it seems. The kingdom of God is at hand, and that means that the King, Jesus, is the one with every resource at His disposal, and He's in control. He can transform our situation, and better yet, He can transform us. In fact, He intends to. Let's pray. Jesus, You are awesome. I am so thankful for Your Word. I am thankful that You are the living God. I am thankful that You care for us and Your created order so deeply that I cannot understand it, but I bask in it. I thank You that You promised to transform us, that You are not through with us yet, that You are creating us into women and men in Your image. And You do so with such lavish grace. You fill our vessels to the brim. They are overflowing with good wine. Lord, sometimes following you seems ridiculous, like taking purified water to the head waiter in this story. Lord, forgive us for our lack of faith. Holy Spirit, call us into new territory of faithful living. Stretch us and grow us for every time you call us to take a new step in your direction. You meet us, and you never fail, and you are wholly good. Oh, the adventure of obedience. Thank you that it's your trustworthy, Lord. Transform us, I pray. Amen.